welcome to Conversations About Life. Well, thanks, Ellie, for joining me on the podcast. And Gracie may be joining us, but we're getting together to talk a little bit about parenting, just to kind of share some thoughts. And the purpose behind it is like a couple of times... Someone has asked me about parenting, I guess because, you know, we've raised a lot of kids. We've had eight children grow up, and you are one of them, as well as Ellie, being as well as Gracie. Mm -hmm. And they've asked, and and I think that people are kind of impressed with you kids. (laughs) And so people have asked me a couple of times, and I could tell the way they were asking me, you know, it was kind of like they were asking for some advice, like they would say something like, you know, it's kind of chaotic, and I just wish someone uh, could Mm. kind of, you know, they were just kind of hinting at advice, and I kind of felt like I just missed the opportunity. It's hard just to plunge into, like, well, this is my thoughts about parenting, you know, just a spur of the moment, and... Here comes Gracie. Just come on in and join in, Gracie. We just so I thought if we just kind of talk about some things and record it, I can just say, hey, mm-hmm. here's my thoughts, if you care to listen to them, and share that with whoever might be interested in it. And then you're a, a parent, Ellie, of a, a couple of really neat little kids, and <laughs> that's for you, Gracie, if you'd like it. And I, uh, so I appreciate, you know, whatever you might have to say. I think our parenting um, is different, our style is different. And, Mm -hmm. um, but I respect, um, you know, what you're doing and the the care that you put into, well, you really get in, you know, behind the eyes of, your children, it seems to me, and try to understand what's going on in them. And you uh, take the time to kind of be sympathetic in that way. And I was kind of more black and white, rule-focused. Mm-hmm. The most important thing was that if there was a confrontation of wills, I won. I thought that was better for me, for the child, and for our home environment, mm-hmm. and for being able to build anything further on that relationship that you had to have that as like the foundation, you know. Um, So anyway, so let's just go ahead and uh, let you guys say something or another because I'm just rattling on. (laughs) I Well, first, it's it's, uh, kind of humbling to hear you like praise my parenting. Um, So that's, well, that's really nice of you. And I'm thankful that you invited me so that I can kind of hear your thoughts and maybe ask questions as we go. But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing your advice here. It's been 32 years since you've been a parent. Yeah. 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 And Gracie, pull that mic a little closer to you. And just, uh, why don't you just say something so people can (laughs) hear you and know that you're in the room? I don't have any parenting experience. <laughs> right. You've just been parented, which is still uh, worth sharing. Yeah. And actually, I think the parenting that I got was probably different than the parenting Gracie got. Yeah. I think, because uh, I, w- I was number four 
and she was number six. Seven. Seven. Number seven. And uh, it, you're, you and mom assumed the parenting style really evolved as we went on. And I feel like a lot of my parenting, if you will, kind of happened um, by Billy and Ruthie um, because most of my time was spent with my siblings and um, they were already kind of growing up and getting jobs and whatnot by the time Gracie was kind of of that that age. Right. I think that's a good point that it's different the first child than, Mm -hmm. you know, it gradually changes over the years. And you see that in children's personalities. Like a firstborn child has the firstborn child's personality. The baby of the family has the baby of the family personality. Yeah, that's a generalization. But it does seem to kind of follow that pattern. The first child tends to like things in order and um, like to kind of be able to control things or make have things be really predictable. I see that in Everly, where she'll be playing with... You know, her friends, she'll be like, you're not playing with the toy correctly. <laughs> and she'll try to show them how they're supposed to use the toy. But, yeah. yeah. And um, it seems like the firstborn puts more pressure on themselves hmm. to do well than mm-hmm. the, the baby of the family, perhaps. And, of, of course, there's a graduation in between the first and the mm-hmm. last, you know. But do you think so? Yeah. Um, I'm, it's probably partially from the parents, partially from the kid themselves, partially from just external, you know, family or their community kind of looking for the firstborn to, uh, be demonstrating the parenting skills of their parent. Like if the, if the second kid is acting out, you can be like, ah, well, the first one was fine. So it's probably not the parent's fault. Um, so that's probably kind of a subconscious pressure that the parents are placing on that kid. Right, and they only have one to practice off their parenting right. on. Whereas when you have four, five, six, uh, you know, it's like you don't, you can't focus all your attention, um, yeah, on you know each individual child like you can if you just have one. So there, I think there's less pr- pressure, you right? Know, yeah, that makes sense. Child. But w- one thing I've thought is that it is kind of helpful to get the first one kind of headed in the right way because that kind of sets an example. And like the first one or two, you know, if there's like pretty good discipline and that type of thing going on, that helps out with the others because it just kind of sets the standard and they just learn that through example. Something Billy really despised was drama, attitude, like um, complaining, that kind of thing, and he shut it down very quickly, <laughs> you know, whenever we would be, um, yeah, I think that's kind of um, something he instilled in our sibling culture was just like, stop whining and complaining, just like kind of be cool, man up, kind of <laughs> like that kind of attitude, which um, sometimes was not great if we weren't like being heard, but for the most part, I think we were like, okay, it's not that important, you know, when we would kind of move on. Um, so I just, I got all kinds of random thoughts. Yeah. Okay. One thing is like sometimes people kind of, when they hear about our family, they kind of express their desire for like wanting a lot of kids or like we would want to have more kids or like 
you know, expressing the the sentiments that more kids is better. And um, one thing I kind of think of is like every family is different, and there's advantages and disadvantages to both. Um, like when you have a whole bunch of kids, your lifestyle is probably going to be different than if you just have a couple, two, three, or what. Mm-hmm. And I, I think of my sister's kids and how they went on to higher education and all of that, you know, whereas that might be not just automatically assumed in our family. Right. And maybe with big families in general, I'm not sure. There, I'm sure there's, mm-hmm. it's all different, you know, but... Um, Okay, so um, another thought is, okay, so I'm just going to give a little bit of an overview of how I kind of think of my parenting when your kids were young. So we got a book called Dare to Discipline by James Dobson. And um, the main thing about it was, um, you know, you should let kids be kids and not punish kids for making childish mistakes and so forth. But when it comes to the point where the child knows what the parent is asking of them and and he's able, he or she is able to fulfill that and obey and they choose not to, then there's two wills against each other and the parent needs to win. And that's the time for a spanking or some kind of discipline like that. So I was... You know, I'm kind of a black and white, I'm a firstborn myself, and I'm a kind of a black and white thinker, and just like, if this is a rule, this is just what you do, and this is the best thing. So I was real exact about that. Like in the book, it said, you know, a child might not understand clearly until about, I think it says 15 months, you know, what the child, what the parent is asking of them, and they might not be able to connect like the discipline, a spanking, can, to the disobedience and stuff. So like up to 15 months, there was, I don't think there was any kind of spanking and stuff. And I remember one time we were at mom and dad's house and Billy was just a little baby and he was just like yelling and whining at the dinner table. And my parents were looking at me like, are you going to do anything? And in my mind, it's like, it's not 15 months yet. (laughs) But once we reached that time, it was like I was super consistent. And and I saw disobedience as like an opportunity. I saw it like I'm seeing this and I can do something to help the child. Whereas I'm so glad I'm seeing it because this could be happening when I don't notice it. And then that would reinforce bad behavior. But now I see it and I can step in. And... It was, um, so I didn't see these discipline type of um, activity as like a negative thing, like, oh no, he's doing that again or something. It was like, hey, this is an opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I kind of saw it as that. I tried to be real consistent because in my mind, it was like if I let something go when it was like challenging my will, then that would reinforce bad behavior. But if I was consistent, it would be good. And Billy has a sense of justice. So there would, I remember a time when he was a little older, maybe three, four, and um, and I was punishing him for something. And 
I think he was right. It, like, it was like, it wasn't right what I was doing. Like I was misunderstanding or it wasn't fair. I forget what the scenario was, but he just threw a fit. <laughs> and, and, um, and it, 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 it uh, convinced me, like I realized this is an unfair situation on his part and he understands it and mm-hmm. he's replying back like, but other times he didn't, like he understood. He took the punishment mm-hmm. and he understood that that's just how it goes. But, you know, he, so he understood right and wrong, just, what's just and fair. And he, I think he felt like the way I was disciplining him was just and fair. And, um, and I remember that one time, which was an exception. Mm-hmm. So um, that's kind of how I thought of things. And I also heard one person, so we were planning homeschool. And I heard one person say, well, a prerequisite is that your kids do what you say. If your kids don't do what you tell them, mm-hmm. don't try to homeschool. <laughs> and that made me think, well, the other things that you want to build on top of the, the discipline you know, you have to have the discipline to do the other things. Like if you want to teach them, if you want to go places, if you want to do this and that, well, you can't do it so well in a chaotic environment. You have to have that, some order, and then you can build on that, and it's going to be better for the children, better for the home life, better for the parent. The parent's going to enjoy parenting more and stuff like that. So normally when I tell, talk to people about parenting, I say, I was really good at discipline, and I describe it a little bit. And I normally say I wasn't so good at like transitioning into a mentoring relationship when the kids got older. I don't know if that's the best way to put it. Um, I think, I don't know. Um, I think we had a weakness in academic. I think you you kids did well, but it was kind of in spite of our homeschooling maybe (laughs) instead of like... uh, I kind of think of that, and I don't know if that's an accurate assessment or not, but um, I'm not sure if the the black and white disciplinary type of thing continues on. Like, there needs to be more to it. There needs to be something about, like, dealing with the heart. It's not just obeying rules, but it's um, talking to a child about their heart so that it's... So it's more about character than just being good at falling in line and following things, you know. So that's the thing I didn't really put a lot of thought into. When When the kids got older, one thing I'm glad that I did that I think went well was trying to spend a little bit of time face to face with each of you periodically just to talk with you one on one. So I'm glad for that. But there were those middle years that we could have been um, maybe talking more about the heart, character, mm-hmm. and and trying to understand that better and, and uh, deal with that. So that's kind of my overview of parenting, I guess, in a nutshell. What are your, what are your thoughts? Uh, just... Anything confusing or any questions about it? Just either of you guys. Um, from my perspective, I can give some things I think you did really well and then some things I think you did not as well. Sure. Like, okay. This is just my uh, perspective and experience. I don't know if all the siblings would even say the same thing. Um, growing up, 
you were definitely very consistent with discipline. Um, I think what was lacking was maybe establishing a connection with your children and um, demonstrating that you enjoyed them because hmm. uh, that that's something I, I wasn't really sure I always enjoyed when I was little. Yeah. Um, and then later, um, as I, kind of in my teens, I think when we started like enjoying conversation together, mm-hmm. I think our relationship really changed. I think I had been saved um, since then and we were able to talk about big life questions. I always had the sense that if there was something really important, I could always take it to you. If it was a little thing, <laughs> I kind of felt like you couldn't be bothered. But if it was something big, um, then I could always go to you. You were very, very wise and I could trust your counsel. And um, so when I did start having some of those, what I would call big questions or big um, issues, I think I really benefited from conversation with you. And, and that's when our relationship really improved. Um, something that I, I never really hear talked about, but I'm convinced now was very, very good for us, was keeping the home as calm and consistent, predictable, stable, and undramatic as it was. Um, especially our family times in the evening, I'd say it was boring, but there was something about us getting used to the calm and the order. Um, what I see now in a lot of people um, is what I believe is a bodily addiction to drama, to the the cortisol and adrenaline, and then the dopamine and kind of like the up and down of... Um, what they think is normal, you know, and so their body is subconsciously, their brain is subconsciously going to seek out situations in which they're getting that, what they believe to be normal. And if things are just boring, then is something wrong? They're, they're going to start looking for, you know, and this is kind of just a, a theory or a hypothesis of mine. I, I don't have anything to back this up, but I do see in me and my siblings um, an enjoyment of just like, kind of simply being and maybe um we really just detest drama (laughs) and so as we got older um and started getting along better we just I mean there were a lot of things that weren't worth fighting over and um that's probably why me and my siblings get along so well it's because we just kind of we're fine doing boring, quote unquote, boring stuff. You know, I I don't know. I just think maybe when we were growing up, we learned that that boring, unstimulated state is what's normal. We didn't have TV. We didn't have constant entertainment. Mm -hmm. We didn't have, I'm a sibling's I remember us fighting a lot, but I don't think that was constant. And I think when we were together as a family, we were never fighting. We were always enjoying sitting together. I mean, crocheting, drawing, listening to you read like every night we were doing that. And I think that was really, really good. And, and also I remember we never like us kids, we never knew about your guys' financial situation or stress at work or like anything like that. To us, it was just like a matter of course that the house was always stable. And um, yeah, it was kind of like just, a, hmm. it was not something that I, I ever worried about. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there was some kind of stability 
and calmness that you instilled in us kids that I think has really benefited us. And I see other people where I, it looks like maybe they're seeking out um, <laughs> uh, excitement mm-hmm. and they're not happy just to be. <laughs> if That's that really sense. interesting. I think Ruthie mentioned something like that about the order. I think it was like in her graduation speech. Hmm. And it kind of, I kind of perked my ears like that, you know, because I didn't really think about it. But I can see we didn't have a TV, which Mm -hmm. I'm really happy about. Yeah, me too. Because I think you kids gravitated toward reading. And I think that... um, Reading has been really good. Like I think reading's really good for kids. It stirs the imagination in really good ways, and um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Like worlds open up to a person through books, right. um, and then TV is more of like just kind of the sensations. It's like less yeah. deep. And I just read uh, the Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the Twenty First Century. I read. Uh, Weinstein and Heather Hine oh, yeah. uh, from mm-hmm. they do the Dark Horse podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- their perspective is wildly different than ours. They're both PhDs in evolutionary biology, mm-hmm. um, but interestingly enough, we wind up at a lot of the same conclusions. And they were talking about how TVs teach your child that their actions don't impact something like mm-hmm. that. There's no it, they talked about that. Um, in contrast with going outside where you drop a rock, it falls. If you push something, it, you know, tumbles over. And, and if you trip, you fall and you hurt yourself. And there, there's a lesson you learn by playing outside that whether you like it or not, stuff is going to happen. If you, if you move and, um, do things, there's consequences. That's just the way of the world where the TV kind of teaches you that, you know, things are going to go on and, no matter what your behavior is. Um, anyway, so they, they were talking about how important it is to get kids outside and how you should really, really keep them away from mass amounts of television because um, it's just teaching them the wrong thing, <laughs> the wrong way about going about the world, I guess. Yeah. And like the reading out loud, that and mm-hmm. like what we call it our family worship time or we call it different things yeah. at different times were routines that mm-hmm. gave stability yeah. where we were all together and focused on the same thing. Mm-hmm. And, and I enjoyed both of those. Yeah. Like our family worship times, um, they weren't like hugely exciting or anything, right. but they were just stable. They were time together. And anyway, I enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah. I have fond memories looking back at the time I was, often bored <laughs> but um i yeah I have very fond memories looking back of all of us together singing and reading the bible and stuff yeah and then reading um good books mm-hmm. um yeah there's just something about that yeah. it pulls like there's been times i've just read with mom and if you get into a really good book together, it's like you just think about that. Like you're looking forward to that time together to go to the next chapter, you know. But anyway, um, I guess uh, one other thought about is like we are so, uh, you know, we're shaped by people. But 
I think in my life, who I'm shaped by um, the most is who my dad was in my childhood. Because like that just stays with you for a long time. And I can think of the different ways my personality is and are just the way I, I think about things. I think a lot of that came from that. And that's kind of like, probably for all of us, for good and for ill. Like there's, you know, a positive and, you know, and a dad, a good dad is mainly positive. But because me and dads are um, not always, um, you know, not perfect people and aren't doing things always the right way, there's like those negative consequences that uh, as well. But anyway, I was just thinking about the other that the other day, how how I've been shaped and how I want to be shaped and how that comes through people, you know. But mm-hmm. do you have any thoughts about that? Do <laughs> you have any thoughts, Gracie? Nope, I'm awfully quiet. How did my experience with that different than, differ from yours, if at all? Um, I don't really know if there was much difference. Um. I mean, I guess I had a lot more freedom as a kid to do stuff that there were, you know, there was less rules, I guess, by the time I came around. Yeah. So, a little less strict. Let's talk about your parenting, Ellie. I think it's interesting because your your field that you're studying in and your interest in, did you call it psychology? Mm-hmm. Okay. So you got that perspective going on with your parenting. Mm-hmm. But anyway, just what, what, how would you sum up your parenting, your philosophy of parenting or that type of thing? I want my child to be able to operate around many different people in different situations um, in a way that they are pleasant, that they are taking care of themselves. But... Um, Right now, I would like them to be socially acceptable. And there's definitely a time and place where you need to step outside of social norms, but um, there needs to be a purpose for, for that, too. Um, so I, I want my child to be able to get along with a lot of different people in a lot of different situations. And so I kind of try to ask, like, what kind of tools or, or coping skills or things can I teach her to help her be pleasant in each situation? Um, so that's kind of my mindset of, like, if she's, if she's disrupting people around her, that needs to be disciplined. Um, or, and that doesn't always mean spanking, but it needs to be corrected. Um, so that, that's kind of the main thing I keep in mind is like, if it's making me mad, I can only imagine how it's making everybody else around me feel. I'm her mother. Like I, I love her. Um, so if, if I'm not okay with it, I doubt other people are going to be okay with it. So that's kind of my standard. And that kind of comes from Jordan Peterson. <laughs> I know. I was just thinking of that Jordan Peterson, because yeah. his idea is like, by the time the child is four, like they need to be social ready socially right they need to be able to make friends they need to have friends by four and like i and and a huge part of my motivation is i want to enjoy her if i'm constantly frustrated with her then i can't enjoy her and that's what's going to really build our relationship so that's another 
really thing that I really, really value is my relationship with her. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's kind of more of a whole person approach, I think, than like mm-hmm. my black and white keep the rules approach. Yeah. You know? Though I think like when they're very young, I value my approach, but I think mm-hmm. there just needs to be more yeah. to it. And actually, when she is young, it's very important for her to obey me because she's young and dumb and <laughs> she doesn't know how to take care of herself. Mm-hmm. So, well, like obedience right now is very, very important just for her sake and her safety. Mm-hmm. Um, later on, I want to make sure she knows why rules are made so that she can start to make her own principles and kind of make her own decisions, hopefully based on principles I've given her. But right now she doesn't have the ability to do that or to make wise decisions. Mm -hmm. So when I tell her to stop, she needs to stop right away. And if she doesn't, I need to fix that because that could be a huge safety issue. If she's running into the road or if she's walking up to somebody, she doesn't know, um, stuff like that. Um, right. Yeah, later on, I would hope. I I know when I was getting into my teenage years, um, we were, uh, rules were very strict. And and we weren't really allowed to question them. Um, And so I remember Ruthie kind of lamenting one time, like, how are we supposed to learn to make our own decisions? Um, Because we're not told why why you decided we couldn't go such and such place. We're just told you can't go and you're not allowed to complain. Um, so I think, I think some more kind of, like you said, mentorship and kind of discussing values at that time and then allowing us to make decisions and then probably talk about them. I mean, everybody's inevitably going to make poor decisions (laughs) and, and then to be able to reflect on them and and try to learn, I think. So, and I don't think like the the idea of not being able to question rules just kind of like to me it just sets me back like no I that's not how I would want to be but it 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 does seem like um it's a little confusing like how do you question rules without mm-hmm. um and still be respectful and um so I don't know. There's, um, but mm-hmm. I, I would want people to be able to question rules and um, right. So uh, around the time our relationship, I think, started getting better, and I identified around 15 or 16 years old, which was after I, I got saved, right after I turned 14. Um, I do remember starting to kind of push back and mm-hmm. negotiate with you, mm-hmm. which was very good for. Our, from my point of view, because a lot of my resentment went away and a lot of my social needs started to be met when we could kind of go back and forth and figure out something that would work with both of us. You really wanted me to be involved in the family and I really, really wanted to spend time with friends. (laughs) So those were our values. And um, to the degree that we were able to push back and forth and figure something out, um, I think that really, really helped me. And, and from my perspective, my relationship with you, um, and my sisters didn't do that. Um, and so they, they just kind of went along. And I think whether they acknowledged it or not, and I'm, I'm kind of speaking for them, so maybe I, 
I don't know, take it with a grain of salt. But I think there was some resentment there that they they couldn't voice and that they, they kind of felt, felt confined. They didn't feel like they were being treated like adults or even teenagers. So um, right. I think it was it was probably a, a good thing that I, I kind of insisted on <laughs> or kind of insisted at least on an explanation and, right. like I said, negotiated with you. Um, Do you remember that? Like when we would go back and forth with like a calendar and... Okay, and no. Um, what I remember, and this might have been like when you were younger than that, yeah. um, is um, I remember um, like the, the other kids, um, I could explain to them, you did this wrong and this is why I need to spank you. And they might be upset, but they would take their... But with you, it no, was like... It was like you always were trying to uh, get out of it, like explain why Mm -hmm. that you don't deserve the spanking. Like you were always arguing your side (laughs) from like real little. And it it was a little frustrating to me because I wanted you to understand why you were getting a spanking. Um, So I would try to, but there was no convincing you. (laughs) I remember actually, I remember starting out like, trying to craft an argument and by the end of our conversation having fully convinced myself that I was in the right and I kind of knew what was happening <laughs> so like I I knew that I was wrong like I, I knew I was supposed to get because <laughs> I remember that happening too <laughs> yeah. just like trying to figure out where I can justify my actions um yeah well while we brought up spanking that's what we call it um you have any thoughts about that is that like an effective tool um, or, or depending just on who you, there are very, very smart experts, Christian and non-Christian who have wildly different views. So mm-hmm. it really depends on who you ask. Mm-hmm. So I can give you my opinion, but what works for some people doesn't work for other people. There are parents who just inside of them feel very wrong mm-hmm. hitting their child. Yeah. And, um, if it's going to mess with how they are able to relate to their child and connect with their child, I think you should be really careful before you're like, you have to spank your children. Yeah. Um, for me, um, if it is outright rebellion and there's not a natural consequence that can happen, such mm-hmm. as like right now, she can't go outside by herself anymore because I told her she could go on the driveway. Well, she started stepping off the driveway. And so, no, now you have to go on the porch well, then she starts stepping off the porch. So now she can't go. So that's a natural consequence. When she asks me, can I go outside? I say, no, because I can't go outside with you right now. And you disobeyed me. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's of an age now. She has a very good memory. She mm-hmm. can remember why that consequence is happening. Um, if there's not a natural consequence like that, that can happen. And it's direct rebellion. Like she knew what she was. And it's very clear that she's purposely disobeying me, then I will give her a spanking. Um, I don't feel bad about giving her a spanking so far because our relationship seems to improve from that. I don't have to explode. I don't have to yell. I don't have to enforce anything. I say, okay, let's go get a spanking and we're going to do that again. Um, So it helps me kind of know that I don't have to try to coerce my child. I mm-hmm. I am the parent. I am the authority. Like I can I can just discipline with a spanking and then we go back. Um, and also, so far after she gets a spanking, she always comes to hug me and we reconnect. Mm. So it's yeah. never um, a distant. So far, <laughs> I know later when kids are 
are just more rebellious than a spanking will deal with, maybe that won't be the case. But right now, a spanking helps us reconnect rather than pushing us further away. So right. I feel very confident in my discipline up until this point as far as corporal punishment goes. Right. To me, it just seems like just simple and effective and fast, and you just get going again, right. you know. Um so here is something I see sometimes. So sometimes that I don't like um, is like, um, okay, so a child. So there's the parent, and then the ch- children are running around their feet or whatever, and the child's doing something it wasn't supposed to do, and the child, mother or father says, "Stop that!" And they might just reach over and like whack, whack, whack on their bare leg or something, mm-hmm. and then the child might. Not like it too much, but then they go on and, you know, mm-hmm. stop that, stop that. Yeah. And it's kind of like, it's not spanking, it's like corralling or something like that. Whereas a spanking um, needs to be like a learning experience. Mm-hmm. You take time for it. You right. go into another place out of the environment. You explain why they're getting the spanking. You give them the spanking. Then afterwards, you might hold them for a minute. You might pray together. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, definitely. But um, it's not just a little way to corral your kids. <laughs> right, yes. And that that's definitely how you guys did it with yeah. us, and that's how I do it with Everly. We do. I, I remove her. We go into her room privately, uh, and we talk about it there. And then afterwards, yeah, we hug and reconnect and then yeah. before we go back to what we were doing. Yeah. yeah, and it seems to make sense to the kids. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. I've been, um, well, and for a while now I've been learning and thinking about attachment theory, which is, I'm more and more convinced it, it's important to every area of our human experience and psychology in general and therapy, like our attachment just affects everything. And so if you haven't heard of it already, you should go look it up. (laughs) Everyone should kind of. I think everybody could be benefited from learning what attachment theory is and and examining themselves in the light of attachment theory. Um, and something posed by it is that a child, when they're young and they're learning to make attachments, need to learn two basic truths. One is that people are trustworthy. Not all people, but that there are trustworthy people that you can um, feel safe with. And that you have inherent lovability like there's um that you you're lovable just for who you are not really because of something you do um and if you don't learn that people some people can be trusted um you may develop an avoidant attachment style where um you've learned you can't draw close to people or you'll get hurt and so you subconsciously you protect yourself by pushing people away and you don't, you're not vulnerable, right? Cause it's an unsafe space for you. Um, on the other hand, if you learn that you are not lovable, um, just for the virtue of being you, um, you may develop an ambivalent or preoccupied attachment style where you're constantly fighting for love and you're obsessive about people's attention and, um, you're working really hard because you, f- you feel like if you don't work hard at any moment, they might drop you and reject or abandon you. And um, 
anyway, so that's something I, I've considered. Like, I really want Everly to understand that she is enjoyable. And, and part of that is like, when you do these things, it's hard to be around you. Right. Um, but also just like for, by nature of, of her personality and just something about who she is herself, I want her to understand that she's enjoyable and that I love her just for her and because she's my daughter. Um, and I, I also want her to experience that with other people, which is why I, I really want her to be an enjoyable person to be around. Um, and then also that mom and dad are trustworthy. That means what we say, we're going to follow through on whether it's positive or not, but, um, that are, that we have good principles and values and that we're consistent. Um, and she's never having to fear what our reaction will be that we're somewhat predictable. I think you and you and mom were, were predictable for us as far as, uh, discipline in, in our household and that was beneficial like like I said as a kid I was never anxious about our situation <laughs> like um or about you and mom it, I don't know I, I didn't know anxiety really huh well that's interesting attachment theory it mm-hmm. sounds like two healthy aspects of relationships mm-hmm. you know that you are lovable and that you can trust other people mm-hmm or some other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I guess you're thinking about how to give that to somebody else um, so that they right. feel love just for who they are and so that they feel that they can trust you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and does that carry on into adulthood? Yeah. Um, so if you want a little bit of history, John Bowlby is called the father of attachment theory, but then him along with Mary Ainsworth, she did a lot of the study, like as far as the testing and, and stuff, his theories, and they went back and forth. And then Mary Ainsworth's student, Mary Main, she carried that on from infancy into adolescence and adulthood to see how it affects things. And it absolutely does. In fact, some of her studies showed that the attachment style of the mom with very, very high predictability would predict the attachment style of not only her child, but her grandchild. Hmm. So her, especially granddaughter, like um, a lot of times it's passed on through the maternal um, side because from an evolutionary design perspective or from an intelligent design perspective, if baby is not attached to mom, they die. Right. Mm-hmm. It's that simple. It's like until now in our recent times, if you weren't f- physically attached to mom, you die like as a baby. And so it's very, very, very important to your survival that you're attached to mom and that you have her attention and attunement. So um, we see through the maternal line, especially grandparents or grandma's attachment style will usually pass down to her grandchild, her granddaughter. Um which is, yeah, I mean, so yeah, it does travel through, (laughs) like, it affects your whole life. Um, If you're, if you imagine an adult who doesn't feel safe getting close, they've learned that they're not supposed to be vulnerable, that they're not supposed to be, like, um, super emotional, and they're not supposed to be really intimate with someone, Um, when their child reacts with that, they're probably going to pull away a little bit, or show some maybe coldness 
or kind of an attitude of you're not supposed to do that. And so the child is going to learn they're not supposed to be expressing that. They're not supposed to be. And it could develop to where the child doesn't even know what they're feeling or expressing in themselves because they're they're trying not to feel it. Um, so the, their body's reacting. Um, when Mary Ainsworth did a study called the Special, special Situation, um, which is one of the most well-known studies in psychology, she looked at 12-month-old infants and their mothers, and they were in a room full of toys. <laughs> that you weren't expecting. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, um, when um, the secure babies, um, they would explore the toy room, and then they'd come check in, back in with mom and recharge, and then they'd go explore, and they'd check back in, and they go, and when mom left, they'd be distressed and, and you know, sad. Mom would come back in, they'd reconnect with her, usually in a physical way, and then they'd soothe and go back out and explore. That was secure. The avoidant babies who had learned they're not supposed to be close to mom, they would go explore and they wouldn't check back in. And they'd behave like they didn't know she was there. But when she left the room, even though the babies didn't physically react, their cortisol levels and their heart rate levels went up just as much or even more than the secure babies. So they had an attachment need, but they weren't making it known, which is how a lot of seemingly very high-functioning people may operate in a way of like, they look like they don't have that need. It's a human need. Everybody needs attachment. Um, But some people learn that it's not safe or you're not supposed to do that, and so they will um, kind of withdraw. So it started off with, you know, being lovable, Feeling that mm-hmm. and being able to trust, which sounds really simple and basic. And then it got really confusing there <laughs> where it sounds like, well, this is really involved. And like, we don't know our own selves so much or what's going on. And, mm-hmm. you know, it sounds well, like those two things that you have to understand. They're more than just a verbal or a, a cognitive understanding. Mm-hmm. That's definitely important. But we're learning this before we have language. Mm-hmm. So it's something you really have to learn in your body. You have to learn what it feels like to be intimate with someone and what it feels like to be secure in a relationship and lovable. Um, yeah. <laughs> so you may not understand yourself because it's below language. Mm-hmm. And really the way to heal from attachment injury is corrective experiences because you have to, you have to experience what it feels like. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of that can happen with the therapist, a therapist who you know, is, is trained how to react to certain stimuli or situations, I suppose, but who refuses to leave and refuses to reject you, um, can really, and, and is also vulnerable and intimate with you without rejecting that. Um, that can be a huge corrective experience for someone. You mean you're vulnerable to them or they both, um, it can, it can be both, and it they doesn't can. mean the therapist necessarily disclosing everything about their life, but disclosing what they're feeling with you in the moment and mm. how they're interacting with you. Like, yeah, what you said actually really hurt me, you know, because, um, y- mm. you know, I thought we had developed this for, you know, um, kind of. So to have an emotional vulner- vulnerability on the part of the therapist is is necessary, I think, for that kind of corrective experience. So. I don't know where I am as far as like my attachment mm-hmm. needs being fulfilled or our desires or how I'm giving that to others and so forth because it sounds like pretty subconscious. Mm-hmm. But something I've been experiencing lately 
is um, just being impressed by the love of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Like, I guess this, um, I don't know when it started exactly, but um, one, maybe, or maybe this was just a reminder of it, um, not long ago, uh, we were looking at uh, the beginning of, um, in John, like when he's talking toward the, before the crucifixion, Jesus is talking with his apostles, and he's so shepherdly, and I, like he's talking about that they're going to suffer, like he's going away, and they're going to be like distressed, but there'll be a time, you know, it's, it'll only be for a while, but I realized, like, he's caring for what their experience yeah. is going to be in just a few days, but he's the one who's going to the cross. <laughs> and um, it. And then I started thinking of other examples and just realizing just the tenderheartedness mm-hmm. of Jesus as seen in the Gospels, and especially the Gospel of John, because it kind of shows more of the conversations and the intimacy. And, and then just considering that, according to the Bible, in some way, Jesus is with us. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of hard to just know what to do with that because he's not someone I can observe with my senses and know that he's with us. So it's just like, well, in some way he's with us. And, um, and that this is what he's like if I just meditate on what he's like. Mm-hmm. He's very tenderhearted and caring to and receiving even of the most sinners, sinful of the sinners, you know. So that has kind of made an impression on me, um, and I've just been thinking about. Um, so is that like a like part of? Do you think that could be kind of like that corrective type of thing? Or I think the gospel is the most corrective experience. Um, in light of attachment theory, God is actually the only trustworthy person. I mean, you may trust your spouse or a family member, but actually, even if they have the best intentions, they will probably hurt you at some point. They're going to hurt you. They are not perfectly trustworthy. Um, God is the only person who has all the right intentions and all the right power to carry that out and the right wisdom. I mean, he's, he's the only one that is actually 100% trustworthy. And in the gospel, we watch Jesus suffer and die to be reconciled to us. Like, and we, we hear the creation story about how we're made in the image of God, but the lengths that God went to, to reconcile himself to his creation, if that can't prove to you that you're lovable, not for what you did, because Christ actually had to do all of it. You couldn't, you couldn't reconcile yourself or make yourself lovable, I guess. But something about who you were was worth all that suffering to be connected to. Um, So, yeah, I have reflected on (laughs) the gospel in light of attachment theory. Like, I think it is the most corrective experience. I think it is the most healing as far as our attachments. Um, And I think there's definitely a correlation between our attachment with God and our attachment with other people and and our attachment with ourselves, but especially like... um, yeah. Have any thoughts about how to lay hold of it? Like, so for me lately, it's just been kind of thinking about it, just bringing it to mind. Any th- other thoughts about how do you 
because like you can there can be all of this mm-hmm. but if it could have no effect to a person potentially or it could just change their lives and transform them so do you have any thoughts about how to kind of be the latter or you know I wish I did I wish I let the gospel affect me more and I wish I let it um, fill my mind more than it does often my mind is occupied by other things Um, so no I don't I don't really know Um, I think thinking on it and meditating on it is is probably the the most I know to do Um, yeah I guess there's lots of different practices and some might resonate with others like singing, praying, mm-hmm. listening, preaching, acts of service, you know, lots of things that particular people might um, find just helps them to mm-hmm. be impacted by the gospel, perhaps. I don't know. But mm-hmm. Meditating on it, thinking about it's, you know, definitely one thing. Yeah. Journaling, which is kind of yeah. like, for me, it's thinking in a straight right, line. Right, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, one thing that I was one way, you're another way in your parenting, and I kind of um, like your way better, is um, I was a f- concerned, sometimes afraid, I guess, of like what would happen to my kids if they were exposed to certain things like on and some of that you know you need because there's dangerous Mm -hmm. things out there but if they went over to someone's house and they watched a particular movie and they saw whatever sexual things violence you know like i was afraid if they saw that it's like would change them or something and and there's something to that but um I think that you are more, um, you know, you allow your kids to be exposed and, you know, you're not concerned about that like I was as much, I think. Is that true? Yeah, I've, I've tried, I try to remind myself of this because it's hard to keep in mind, but I would rather my child be capable than safe. Mm-hmm. I would rather teach them how to be safe with, um, objects and situations rather than put safety locks on everything and you know green everything they're going to come in contact to or contact with right now my child's about to turn three so still it's pretty protective like i um but i i really want to keep that in mind i want to build her up and teach her principles so that she is taking care of herself especially when she's a teenager and an adult and I'm not having to do that Um, because the world is just not safe. I can't protect her forever. Um, One way I really want to do that is by her wrestling with ideas at a young age. Um, I've seen in very conservative families where once their children are exposed to um, news sources, media, maybe conspiracy theories, it seems like they fall prey to so many lies and false narratives or just exaggerated skewed narratives as if it's, I think because they weren't exposed to all of the junk ideas, all of the different philosophies, all the conspiracy theories. Um, 
And so once you hear it, if you're not equipped to battle it, Mm -hmm. you're just going to believe it all. You know, if all you heard up till now was believable and true, then (laughs) Um, anyway, so that's an area I really want. Not necessarily her to be exposed to, yeah, like sex and violence and and stuff like, or even, I want to be careful about like bad attitudes and and sin that she's exposed to, but um, I still want her to have the ideas that she's wrestled with, especially as she gets older. Um, But Mm -hmm. it's, I still have to remind myself like um, when she's, climbing the ladder at the park and just going on up. And I really want to run over there and guard her. And I just have to be careful that, um, if, if it's not a life threatening situation, uh, she's allowed to hurt herself and I just need to be okay with that. I mean, she doesn't know how fast she can run until she goes too fast and she falls. Yeah. There's really no other way to learn. It's hard. It's hard to watch as a mom. (laughs) I, I can see her running down a hill and I can know that she's going to hurt herself. But if it's not life-threatening, then I'm, I want to be the mom who lets her go ahead and do that and learn from it rather than just keep her safe all the time. Yeah, that sounds like Jordan Peterson too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, one funny memory is like, you were probably the youngest maybe, or maybe there was a baby but like all of the kids were fighting and arguing. They maybe were down in the basement or something. And I stepped in and like, I was kind of like heated up and I was ready just to talk to everyone. But you were so young. I didn't think that you should be involved in like the lecture, you know? So I said, all of you guys up to the living room or something like that. And I said, Ellie, you don't have to come. And you said, well, I want to come. (laughs) So... (laughs) So I think I said, you know, you don't have to, but you, you wanted to. So you came up and you, and you all sat in the benches or whatever what, that was in the living room. We had pews for a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I, I think I opened up the Bible to like where Paul says it's better to be wronged um, than to be quarreling. And I said, you know, it's better to be wronged. <laughs> I was just getting real serious, and then all of a sudden you said, I think I will go back downstairs. <laughs> so, <yeah>. <laughs> One thing that people with kids bring up is like chaos. It's like mm-hmm. that's what they're having a problem with. So we touched on that. Any thought? Any other thoughts about advice for people who just feel like their home's really chaotic? Um, it makes it really hard to enjoy family life. And I think for the child's sake, as well as your own, you need to have an enjoyable environment. So kind of, that's kind of the standard for a lot of my stuff is like, if, if I'm not enjoying my home because of the mess, then I need to clean it up to the point where I can enjoy being there. Then that's kind of my standard, which is pretty low compared to a lot of people I think um (laughs) but um that's kind of the standard I have too is like if it's too chaotic to where I can't even enjoy my home that's not good for the kids either it's not good for them to feel like people don't enjoy having them around which is another Jordan Peterson thing like if they walk into a room and people are groaning or or you know sighing or like kids pick up on that you know um they're anyway 
So I think it's best for them too that you have an enjoyable place. So if it's so chaotic that you can't enjoy it, then I do think you need to crack down. I think it's worth the struggle it takes to enforce better behavior. Yeah. One thing I just thought about is consistency. Like spanking now and then, but not consistently, mm-hmm. might be worse than not spanking at all. Um, and another thought is, should there be a different approach? Like if you're, you know, when I'm thinking my black and white rules, winning when the wheels come together approach, you know, like that started when Billy was 15 months. Mm-hmm. So like what if that hasn't been practiced and the kids are like three, four, five, and then I can see how it could maybe be a problem if like all of a sudden you're trying to go that approach. I don't know what that would be like. That might be better than not, but it seems like... I think it would be. If your kid is five, you actually can still physically restrain them. There was an experience I had babysitting in which none of the children wanted to bend to my will. I mean, I would suggest something or I would tell them not to hit their sibling or whatever it was, you know, you can't have that right now. None of them, none of them wanted to obey me. And I was put in a difficult situation, but the children who were young enough where I could physically pick them up and put them in their bed, I didn't have permission to spank them or discipline them any other way, but I told him, you have to stay in your bed until you're willing to listen and obey. He stayed in that bed for about half an hour. This is probably, he was probably five. Um, finally, finally, he got up and was obeying me. And after that, we got along. By the end of my experience there, it was the older children. We really did not like each other. We did not like each other at all. The younger children who had obeyed me and who I was able to work with and play with and collaborate with, they were the ones who missed me when I left. Like, hmm. um, so I don't think it's a lost cause. I mean, I had one night with those kids, but the ones who were small enough that I could actually physically restrain them and, and establish my authority, like right away, those are the ones who I really enjoyed. Like mm-hmm. we had a great time. <laughs> right. And I guess if they are older teenagers or whatever, it's... If their parents had the authority to physically kind of get get them in line maybe i don't know um i just knew that i i couldn't do anything with them i could try to bribe them i could try to coerce them i had really very little authority so when i told them to go to bed and they all like just looked at me i was like i don't know what to do i I can't do anything (laughs) but if you're a parent in that situation and all of a sudden you're wanting to bring some order it's almost like a different you might have to win them over right. or use different well, consequences that yeah you'd something. have to use consequences right. they care about because you're right. still in, in charge you know? right yeah 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 i didn't have the ability to take anything away that they cared about or yeah. do anything that was painful so yeah okay well do you have any thoughts gracie no <laughs> <laughs> thanks for being our audience <laughs> um it seems like a really profitable conversation. Yeah. So I really appreciate your input. And it's it's nice to hear your perspective of where you think you did well or not. And uh, I think that's really valuable. Okay, good. Thanks. All right. Well, thank All you right. very much, both of you. Thank you, Dad. Mm-hmm.